0: something in the Bible and kind of raise an eyebrow and think, what in the world did I just read? Um, And the verses that we're going to look at this morning, Peter is going to show us uh, how we can thrive in three specific relationships while we are suffering. Now, on the surface, as we kind of uh, dig into these different types of relationships, uh, they might seem like they are disconnected from suffering. It might seem like it doesn't really fit into that theme, However, it's these relationships that often suffer while we are going through difficult times. And so what Peter does is he gives us valuable instructions so that we can thrive in our relationships despite the suffering that is going on around us. And when we follow these, destructions over the, uh, these instructions, not destructions, that's the wrong idea, when we follow these instructions over the course of our lives, our relationships actually become a gift of grace in our suffering instead of making our suffering worse. Now, I started with the question that I did because these verses that we're going to work through this morning are often misunderstood. Uh, these are verses that have caused people to turn away from Christianity because they had the incorrect understanding of them. These verses have also been taken out of context, and people have done harm with them. Now, I want to be clear, that is not the fault of Scripture. That's the fault of broken people perpetuating their brokenness and harming others in the process. We cannot allow what people have wrongly done with the Bible to cause us to avoid or disobey what the Bible actually says. And so this morning, we're going to take our time and carefully work through these passages. Um, I typically try to keep my sermons right between 25 and 30 minutes. Uh, We're going to take our time this morning, so I'm apologizing ahead of time. We're not going to be within that time window. If this sermon is too long for your taste, uh, let's just all take this as an opportunity where we can practice suffering well together, all right? (laughs) The theme, that joke is not original with me, by the way. Um, The theme that we're going to see emerge from our text this morning, specifically as we work through these type of relationships, is that We can pursue healthy relationships because of how Christ treats us, not because of how others treat us. We can pursue healthy relationships because of how Christ treats us, not because of how others treat us. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter number 2. We're going to read. We're going to work through chapter 3, verses 12. But to start, we're going to read verses 18, 19, and 20. Stand with me if you're physically able as we get ready to read our text. We're continuing through our series, Thriving in Exile, discovering how the Christian identity enables us to suffer well. Uh, If you're our guest with us this morning, thanks so much for coming. Uh, I'd invite you to scan the QR code on the seat in front of you. Uh, When you do that, you scan that with your camera app. When you do that, it'll take you to our online digital bulletin. And there's a place, if you're our guest with us this morning, that you can fill out a connection card. For every first-time guest that fills that out, uh, we will make a donation to a nonprofit here in the city of Fresno. So, if you care about people, you'll really fill it out. Just kidding. Um, but please fill it out. Uh, also, on their digital bulletin, there uh, is a link for the sermon notes. So, you can follow along. You can take your own notes and send them to yourself. Um, I'm just going to be honest with you up front. I have way more in my notes than we're going to cover this morning. So, at the bottom of the notes, there's a link where you can get the full transcript of my notes and everything I say and everything that we won't have time to work through this morning. So I'd encourage you after the service to make yourself available for that. But First Peter chapter 2, we're going to read verses 18, 19, and 20. The Bible says, Household slaves submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor with God if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten you endure it, but when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into our Bible study this morning. Father, we love you so much, and Lord, we do acknowledge that you are holy, holy, holy. Thank you for the opportunity that we had this morning as a church to reinforce And remind ourselves of that beautiful and amazing truth we can reinforce and remind ourselves of that together corporately as a church family and lord i pray that as we work through this passage this morning you would help us to have a clear understanding of how uh, a clear understanding of your design for our relationships and how we can move forward in them while we are going through difficult times ourselves we ask this in your name amen you may be seated now as we start i want to acknowledge the difficulty of this passage um, given our country's history as well as the current climate that we find ourselves in. Uh, I know given the racial tension that's in our country, reading a passage like this for some can feel like pouring salt on a wound at the very least. And so I want to acknowledge that this morning, but I think because of that it's doubly important that we have the proper historical context for what we're reading. Uh, it's easy to superimpose our own historical context as American as and as Westerners, into this passage and misinterpret what is being said. As Peter continues to tackle the idea of Christian submission, the fact that he addresses household slaves here in verse 18 is difficult. And for those of us in the western part of the world, when we read this verse, our mind almost instantly goes to the the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade in, in the European colonies and the American slave trade that happened here in the United States. Uh, The slavery that we instantly tend to think about was race-based, it was oppressive, it was lifelong, multi-generational, it was fueled by kidnapping. Uh, It was a horror which had cruel repercussions that we're still wrestling through to this day. Uh, The brutal inhumanity of that sinful system was compounded by the fact that it was deeply rooted to racism. And I I do want to tell us the Bible does condemn that type of slavery. First Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul is listing out works of rebellion. He's listing out works that are ungodly and sinful and unholy and irreverent. And on that list, he includes slave traders. On that list, he includes murderers and people that are sexually immorals and liars and perjurers. And not just murderers, but people that killed their own parents. That word slave trader in First Timothy is a word that's used to describe those who would take a person captive in order to sell them into slavery. And so the Bible is very quick to condemn that and to put it on a list of heinous, heinous crimes and sins. In fact, under the Old Testament law, kidnapping and selling people was given the death penalty in Exodus chapter 21. And so when we read this passage of Scripture, we want to make sure that we have an appropriate understanding of what the Bible is talking about. Now, unfortunately many people have used this passage in 1 Peter to sinfully justify what we think of when we think of slavery. But to think Peter is supporting that type of slavery is an inhumane misunderstanding of these verses. Like those verses that we just recognized, this is not what the Bible is talking about. The Bible does condemn that. Slavery in the Roman Empire and in biblical times was very different. It wasn't Uh, chattel slavery like what we think about, it was uh, uh, largely a way to pay off debt. There was no such thing as bankruptcy in the Roman world and so people that were in a situation where they had more debt than they knew how to pay off would oftentimes sell themselves so that they could get a decent job and pay off the debts that they own. Many people in this situation in the Roman world lived normal lives or paid the going wage just because of their situation they weren't allowed to quit their job or to change employers for a set period of time while they work to pay off their debt. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there was what was called the year of Jubilee, when all debts were forgiven and all slaves were set free. And it's people that are in this category that the Apostle Peter is talking about. These were people who were a servant. They were in some type of indentured servitude in order to work off their debt for a set period of time. And what we see is as you study history this was not race-based this was not oppressive like the chattel slavery that happened in our own country's history this was not lifelong so what peter's addressing here is very very different than what instantly comes into our mind and what peter's doing is, is he's taking on this institution in the roman world and he's telling believers how they can honor god within it he's not condoning it he's not even saying it's good or it's always right what he's doing is he's saying, hey, this is an unrighteous institution in the world you live in, and this is how as people is God, people of God, you honor God within it. And as he does this, he, along with other scriptures, they begin to sow the seeds that would actually lead to freedom. And what we're going to see throughout scripture is passages like this in 1 Peter don't actually stop us from addressing unjust systems or cruel treatment. Hunter talked about that last week. We see that in Acts chapter number 22. We see that taking place throughout scripture as well. And this is why it's so important for us as Christians to have a proper understanding, a historical understanding of this passage. Because many times critics of Christianity will look at it and be like, well no, the Bible condones slavery. How can you believe that? And we have to have the right understanding of what is going on so that one, we can be ready to give an answer, but then also so that we in our own minds can know how do we apply this passage with what is going on in our day and age. The Bible doesn't condone that. It was actually biblical theology that destroyed the coercive heart of the institution of slavery. It was biblical theology that led uh, men like Frederick Douglass and Wilbur Wilberforce to fight the fight in abolition so that slaves could be set free. And so with all that historical context and how does this passage apply to us? Well the closest relationship that we have in our culture would be the workplace. Which leads us to our first thought this morning, how do we navigate a difficult work environment? Navigating a difficult work environment. Oftentimes, and I've talked to many of you, you're like, man, my job is sometimes a source of my suffering. How do we navigate that difficult work environment? Well, what Peter is telling us to do is he's actually giving us instructions so that we can honor God when the person that is over us, when our boss or someone in authority over us is not acting rightly, is not acting fairly. He then broadens his audience by addressing someone who is enduring grief. So what do you do when your boss is unfair? What do you do when your boss is cruel to you? Well, Peter challenges us with this idea of being submissive and doing what is good because true grace is demonstrated to the world when you are treated unjustly but respond honorably and good. True grace is demonstrated to the world when you are treated unjustly but respond honorably and good and good, which leads us back to our theme. We can pursue healthy relationships because of how Christ treats us, because of the grace that he's given us, not because of necessarily how others are treating us. You see, when we refuse to react to suffering in sinful ways, it makes us more like Jesus, and it demonstrates our confidence in him. And Peter tells us that as we're aware of God, as we have that consciousness of God, we can endure the grief that comes from unjust suffering. As we are mindful of God, we will honor and respect those who hold positions over us, even if they are not always good. Now, to be clear, Peter is talking about unjust suffering. So if you're doing a bad job at work, and you get in trouble, you cannot be like, oh, I'm just a modern day Job. No, you're just being lazy, and you're dealing the fruit of it, okay? He's talking about unjust suffering, and he does even address that in these verses. But when we do do what is good, and we are living rightly, and we suffer as a result, what do we do? Well, Peter gives us two very helpful thoughts. First of all, he shows us that Jesus is our example. Look at verse 21. He says, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. In the 90s, the phrase WWJD was really big. What would Jesus do? Well, this is where that came from, that you should follow in his steps, He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. One of the things that Peter repeatedly addresses is how Christians should understand and respond to suffering. And here he's telling us that we are called to suffer because Christ suffered for us. And Christ, as he suffered for us, left us an example to follow. We should follow in his steps. Jesus is the perfect example of someone who endured suffering unjustly. Instead of responding to evil for evil, Peter challenges us to trust God who will one day make every wrong right. But Jesus isn't just our example. Jesus is also our substitute, verses 24 and 25. And because Jesus is our substitute, that enables us to follow his example. Look at verse 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness, so that, having died for sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep who are going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus' suffering was more than just our example. He's our substitute, and as our substitute, because he was our substitute, we now have his righteousness in us, which enables us to respond the way Jesus and endure and respond in a way that is good and right. As Peter is quoting Isaiah here in these verses, he reminds us of our past and now our current standing with God. Jesus has given us the ability to live in a way that pleases and honors him. God will not ask us to suffer in any way that his son was not willing to undergo himself. And the cross is the ultimate demonstration of this. Any unjust suffering we face is only temporary, and we live with the promise that one day God will make every wrong right. So that is how we navigate a difficult work environment. When there are things that are taking place that are unjust, how do we respond honorably and submissively? We do what is good. We don't respond with evil for evil. But as Peter moves into chapter number three, he then helps us navigate two more types of relationships as strangers and exiles. And as we begin to read chapter number three, Peter is going to address how do we thrive in our marriages? When we're going through suffering, when we're going through difficulty, Peter helps us to understand how we can thrive in our marriages. And he begins addressing couples. This is another one of those passages that many people will often struggle with. Look at chapter 3, verse number 1. In the same way, wives submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now, I know a lot of us are like, hold up, Pastor Nick. It's 2021. I mean, come on. What are you doing? Wives submit to your husbands. This sounds so backwards. But hang with me for a moment. Sometimes we get the idea, and it's a wrong idea, but that submitting is just a woman's issue. But throughout Scripture, we are told that a Christian's life is to be marked by submission. That's one of the big things that Peter is driving home here in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. We started looking at it last week in the way that we submit to our government. Being a submissive Christian is an extremely important part of the Christian life. And Peter applies this in different ways to all Christians. Now, unfortunately, this is another one of those passages that has been wrongfully used by men to make themselves feel superior to or boss their wives around. And I just wanna say that is 130% wrong. And what we're gonna see as we work through these passages is Peter's actually trying to accomplish the opposite. Look at verse number seven of chapter three. When he begins to address the husbands, Peter says, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as the weaker partner Showing them honors as co-heirs of the grace of life, so your prayers will not be hindered. Now, again, I know many of us are thinking, okay, Pastor Nick, what do you mean the weaker partner? Like, give me some definitions here. There's ladies, and they're just like, I just want to see what you're going to say here. Pray for me. (laughs) Well, I want to say, again, historical context, scriptural context is helpful. Right from the very beginning of scripture, right in the very first chapter of the Bible, there we see equality between men and women. Both men and women are equally created in the image of God. In fact, being a man and being a woman is intrinsic to being created in the image of God. And because of this, women are not second rate. Because of this, women are not beneath men. They are not less than men. This is exactly the point that Peter's making when he says, no, women are co-heirs of the grace of life. They have an equal standing before God with you, men. And so husbands, you should treat them as such. Here's the problem. Sin has grossly distorted and ignored this truth, and as a result, men have objectified women throughout history. And in Roman society, when this was being written, women were treated as second-rate people. Their testimonies were not even permissible in a lot of courts. Women, wives were often treated as property. And so when Peter comes along and says, husbands... In the same way, in the same meek way, in the same submissive way, in the same respectful and honoring way, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, I believe he's referring to their position in society. He's saying, look, because they are in a weaker position in society, as men, you need to honor them. Because they are in a weaker position in society, because society does not lift them up as husbands, we should come along and lift up our wives and understand their wives We need to treat them as equal. The world devalued women, but Christianity came along and it affirmed women. It says, hey, look, in God's eyes, we're equal. Yes, there are distinctions that complement one another, but we are both equal before God. And so we see Christianity is actually very countercultural in the way it treated women, and I believe this passage demonstrates that. Now, with that foundation laid, let's go back to verse number one. and look at the instruction he gives wives and then husbands. In 1 Peter 3, verse 1 1 and 2, In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they might be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure and reverent lives. Now, there's a few things I want to say that submission is not before we talk about what it is. First of all, even though uh, God is telling wives to submit to their own husbands, he wants it to be voluntary, not coerced. This is something a wife voluntarily gives to her husband. It's not something a husband demands his wife gives him. So wives, if your husband says, you need to submit to me, woman, because I'm the man, you can say, hey, dude, butt out of my verse, okay? (laughs) He's not talking to husbands, he's talking to wives, okay? So even though he's telling wives, submit to your husbands, this is voluntarily, just like in chapter two, Peter says, hey, submit yourselves as free people. That's the idea here. It's the same idea. It's voluntarily given, not coercively taken. Second, it has nothing to do with value or worth. We've established that. Men and women are equally created in the image of God. God views them as equals in that way. Third, submission is not passivity. This doesn't mean wives are supposed to be doormats. This doesn't mean you don't get to have opinions or express those opinions. It doesn't mean that. Fourth, again, the specific context of this is within the marriage relationship. Submit to your own husband. Peter, in this passage, is not calling on all women to submit to all men. Submission is ultimately about trusting God. You see, when we follow God's design, the husband is supposed to lead his family and love towards Christ with love and service, and the wife supports him in doing that with her gifts and abilities. Submission has nothing to do with limiting her gifts and abilities. In fact, when it's done right, it should elevate her gifts and abilities so that she could come along and support her husband as together they pursue Jesus. If you read Proverbs chapter 31, it's a passage that's often used to describe a godly woman. You'll see, That that godly woman is very active outside of her home. She is a leader in many ways. And so this is not about limiting them, it's actually about lifting them up. Now it needs to be said that a wife is never obligated to do something that would be contrary towards God's word. In Ephesians, uh, Paul says that her submission is to be as unto the Lord. What submission means is the wife willingly yields to her husband as together they pursue Christ. At God's design, the husband will seek his wife's perspectives and hear and value his wife's thoughts. God wants this marriage relationship to be a team working towards the mission of God, not a competing battlefield. Now, again, you say, okay, that's that's God's perfect design, but what happens when a wife's perspective isn't heard and isn't valued? Then what? Well, again, I wanna lean back on our theme. We can pursue healthy relationships because of how Christ treats us, not because of how others treat us. Peter actually addresses this. He goes on to say that wives can win over their disobedient husbands without even having to say anything. He doesn't say you can't, but he says you can do it without even having to say anything by the way you respect your husband. And just like a Christian can win an unbeliever by the way they live as strangers and exiles, Peter specifically applies that same idea as to wives. Wives, you can win over your disobedient husband to the cause of Christ by the way you respect him. Because your life then becomes a testimony to the worthiness of following Jesus. Wives, you can be respectful to your husbands even when they don't deserve it, even when maybe they're being a bonehead. <laughs> can I get an amen, wives? Sometimes we're, we're boneheads. Because you don't need your husband to be worthy of your respect. You don't, you don't, you don't need him to be worthy of it because Christ is worthy of your respect. And so your respect is ultimately towards God. When you keep your eyes on God, not your husband, you can give that respect freely. Your husband doesn't have the ultimate authority in your home. God does. And when your eyes are fixed on God, you will never be disappointed and be able to freely give that respect. Submission is more of a hot posture like what Philippians 2 said. esteem others better than yourselves. It's more about that than doing everything your husband tells you to do. You'll notice in this passage and other passages where it addresses the roles of husbands and wives, it never tells the husband he has the authority to tell his wife what to do. It says he is to honor and serve and love. Again, this is something that's voluntarily given. God did not give us as husbands the authority to be the boss of our wife. Now to be clear, this passage does not apply to submitting to an abusive husband again Ephesians is helpful as unto the Lord the most loving thing a wife can do with an abusive husband is report him and seek safety and if you need help doing that we as a church are here to help anybody in that type of an abusive situation so that you can get the help and the safety that you need this is a safe place for women who are in those situations. So if you're watching online, you're here in person and this is triggering for you and this is difficult for you because there is abuse going on, I just want to let you know this is a safe place for you and we will help you lovingly report that loser <laughs> to the proper authority so that you can be safe. This passage also has nothing to do with what husbands and wives stereotypically do in a relationship. This has nothing to do with who does the chores at home. This has nothing to do with who makes more money than who. This has nothing to do with who makes the sandwiches and who picks up the clothes. Guys, let me help you out for a minute. Make your own stupid sandwich. Like, come on, dude. Pick up your own underwear. Like, I'm just getting real here. Let God's, what God's Word actually says inform your marriage relationship. Not 1950s, leave it to Beaver, okay? I was recently at a wedding, and I thought the bride and the groom, they wrote their own vows. And I thought the bride's vows did a great job of reflecting this. She said, I promise not to focus on making you happy, but rather to encourage you to find your happiness in Christ. I promise not to blindly follow you through life, but rather to stand beside you, hold your hand, and walk through it together. I promise not to become what you want as a wife, but rather to strive every day to be exactly what Christ wants you to have as a wife. I promise not to depend on you solely for my happiness, health, and strength, but rather to depend on Christ and lean on Christ with you for those things. I promise not only to love you with my whole existence and strength, because that'll never be enough, but I promise to learn every day to love you through Christ's example and with his help. I promise not only to love you as you currently are, which I do, she said, but also to encourage and pray for you to continue to become exactly what you are supposed to be through Christ. And I promise you that no matter what happens, through all the great times as well as the tough ones, the sunny days as well as the rainy ones, the one where it's easy to be married and the one where it's not, I promise to always be there with you when you need your best friend. Submission is a wife following her husband's lead as they both together support Christ. Now as we move off from those instructions in verses 3 through 6, Peter almost sounds a little bit old-fashioned. He starts saying things like, hey, your beauty isn't consisted of outward clothing. It's not made up of beautiful gold jewelry. He's like, it's not based on how you do your hair. And it's almost like, Peter, man, what are you you talking about, bro? But the admonition that he gives wives here, it's not a prohibition from getting dressed up. It's not a prohibition from outward beauty. As much as it is, he's giving them freedom from finding their worth and beauty in those outward things. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with outward beauty. God designed it. How many of your husbands are glad you have a beautiful wife? Dude, some of you guys are in trouble. Let me tell you. Let us try that again. Husbands, how many of you are glad you have a beautiful wife? There we go. All right. Some of you don't have to sleep on the couch tonight. Good job. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with outward beauty. God designed it. Well, but what Peter's doing in these passages is he's showing that it's the inward beauty of holiness and a gentle and quiet spirit that's really of great worth. I mean, we're constantly bombarded with worldly ideas relating to beauty and identity. And what Peter's doing is he's coming alongside and he's saying, no, what God sees is what takes place on the inside of the heart. God sees that personal pursuit of holiness. God sees that gentle and that meek spirit. God sees the fruit of the spirit in your life. And God says that is what is truly beautiful because that is what lasts for eternity. Let me just help us all. There's going to be a day in all of our lives when everything the world says is beautiful about us ain't there no more. We're all going to get old and wrinkly. And so what Peter's doing is he's saying, hey, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but don't pursue that. Don't let that be what your beauty is based on. And men, this is tremendously helpful for us as well because it helps us know what we should prioritize and what we should value. I mean, there's this kind of, and I've seen it kind of recirculating in some uh, Christian circles. It's this really false and disgusting idea that a Christian wife has to look a certain way or act a certain way or dress a certain way so that her husband can be faithful. Let me just say really clearly, that's garbage. Peter's being very clear. What is truly beautiful in the eyes of God, what lasts for eternity, is holiness. It's likeness. The idea that a husband's purity is depaced upon the appearances of his wife is so out of step with the gospel. It is so out of step with the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, we, we, we all heard about the shooting in Atlanta a couple weeks ago, or a week or two ago. It breaks our heart. But it was so disgusting when he said, I'm just trying to eliminate temptation from my life. Guys, that is so wicked and satanic. The idea that our own purity, I'm talking to us guys here, so family meeting time, gentlemen. The idea that our purity is based on anything other than our own walk with God is a lie. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 4. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So guys, husbands, don't you dare put any type of expectations on your wife that they have to look a certain way or act a certain way or be a certain way. God puts that squarely that responsibility squarely on our, on our own shoulders, that you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor. Wives, you are free from the idea that you have to conform to any type of external beauty, to be who God wants you to be, to be valuable, to be lovely. And as a church, we want to reinforce that type of culture. We want to be the type of culture that elevates that internal pursuit of Jesus and recognizes that's really what's beautiful, because that's what lasts for eternity. Then in verse number seven, Peter addresses Christian husbands. Verse number seven, husbands in the same way. I I like how it says in the same way, in the same way. Look, we're all supposed to have this submissive heart. We're all supposed to have this meek heart. We're all supposed to have this heart that esteems others better than themselves. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Christian husbands are called to have the same heart as Jesus, gentle and lowly. It's interesting, that's, I think it's the only passage in Scripture where Jesus says, this is my heart. It's gentle and lowly. As Christian husbands, we're supposed to be driven by what is good for our spouse. We're supposed to be driven by selfless love. We're supposed to be driven by honoring them. We're supposed to be driven by grace towards them. Maybe you're thinking, you're like, but doesn't Ephesians say the husband is the head of the wife? Yes, it does, but notice how it defines that. How does it define headship? How does it define leadership? By loving and sacrificial service and pursuit of her holiness. The way Christ sacrificially loved and pursued the church. Throughout the New Testament, we're told that biblical leadership looks like service. I challenged the men in our church with this yesterday. Matthew 25 through 28, Jesus called them over and said to him, you know that the rulers of the Gentile, they lorded over them, and those in high positions, they act as tyrants over them it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As husbands, our job is not to lord over our wives like we're some macho boss dude. Get over yourself. Like, if Christian husbands were known for this type of leadership, sacrificial love, sacrificial service, honoring, preferring her over myself, sacrificing so that she could grow in her holiness, there would be no such thing as toxic masculinity in the church. And we can argue all day over whether or not all of that's real or not, but the truth is, as Christian husbands, we should be known by this sacrificial love, the sacrificial service, the sacrificial Honor and we need to pursue her and seek to understand our wives so that we can know best how to love her and serve her. It says, Live with your wives in an understanding way. Guys, this means we need to work really hard at getting to know our wives and getting to know them throughout the course of our lives. People don't stay the same. People change throughout their lives. And as husbands, it's our job, it's our call to pursue that in her and to get to know her and to see what makes her tick. One of the best pieces of marriage advice I was ever given was always be a student of your wife. It's amazing to me how men can rattle off stats about sports and cars and whatever their hobbies are, but sometimes they're like lost as a fart in a windstorm when it comes to their wife. Sorry, I'm trying to be a little funny because this is heavy. Um, Part of seeking to understand your wife, men, it means you listen. And you don't listen so you can fix her problems. Lord, help me, I struggle with that sometimes. (laughs) I've gotten really good at just saying, okay, babe, before you start, do you need me to fix this or do you want me to listen? Only one time I can ever remember where she said, I want you to fix it. She was, like, telling me, and I'm just like, okay, I'm going to listen, I'm going to listen. She's like, I need your help. And I was like, oh, man, (laughs) the one time I listen, I get it wrong. But but what it really means is we need to seek to listen to understand, not so that we can fix it. We listen to understand because, man, I value what's going on inside of her. As husbands, we value what's going on inside of our wives. We value their thoughts. We value what's going on inside of them. And so we seek to understand them. I want to live with her in an understanding way. I want to know what makes her tick so I can know how to serve her and love her and honor her. It means we ask good follow-up questions so that we can better understand because we value her thoughts and her burdens. As men, we're not known for being good listeners, but as husbands, we should pursue that gift. We should work at that. We should develop that skill set. It means as husbands we are consistently laying down our lives for our wives. It means I sacrifice what I want for what she wants. I sacrifice what I desire for her desires. Sometimes guys will try to be super macho and be like, I take a bullet for my wife. Great, dude, you should 100%. But let's be real, you'll never have to. Instead of being macho and leaning on something that will never happen, why don't you just go do the dishes for her? Can I get an amen from the ladies? Like, All right, guys, why don't you get up a little bit earlier and pray for her? Why don't you pray over her? Why don't you serve her? Husbands, when was the last time you gave something up for your wife? You both wanted something and you said, you know what, I will sacrifice so you can have what you want. Instead of maybe buying a gun with that stimmy, like, okay, what is my, what, what can, how can I serve my wife? Ephesians 5 tells us as husbands that we're to wash our wives in the water of the word. This means we lead our wives to Jesus. This means we model what a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like, and we work at pointing our wives to Jesus. The number one person Jesus has given me to disciple is Sarah. And I could run a great discipleship program here at the church. I could disciple... Everybody in the church, everybody could be discipled. We could create a culture of discipleship in our church, but if I failed to point my wife to Jesus, I failed. Peter tells us to show them honor as co heirs of grace so that our prayers will be not hindered. There's passage after passage after passage in Scripture that promises God hears our prayers, that promises how God will answer our prayers. This is one of the few passages where we see our prayers might actually be hindered, and it's addressed specifically to husbands. I mean, as a husband, this passage puts the fear of God in me a little bit, and I feel like once I had daughters, I've got two daughters, this verse really (laughs) kind of had more weight for me. I mean, there's something special about a dad's relationship with his little girl, isn't there? How many of you dads have a daughter? There's something special about that. When one of my daughters runs up and gives me a big hug or tells me I'm the best or I come home and they squeal, Dad! Like, man, pff, I'm butter. Like, yeah, what do you want? Here you go. Like, just, it's all yours. We have this big fur blanket at home that I'll sometimes use in the morning. Don't judge me. It's so comfy. Um, it's sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll have that on in the mornings, and my three-year-old Brooklyn should come up to me. Daddy, you look like a king. I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> if anyone would ever do anything to hurt one of my little girls, he and I would have a big problem. Like, I'll just, I'll just be real with you. Now, imagine some jerk treated one of my daughters poorly, treated her awfully, then turned around and asked me for money. Dads, imagine if somebody treated one of your little girls in a wrong way, in a way that was not right, was not honoring, wasn't everything that we've been talking about, and then they turned around and they asked you something. How would you respond? You'd be like, listen, bub, (laughs) here's what Peter's telling us, guys. Your wife is God's daughter. She is a co-heir of the grace of life with you, pal. She is God's daughter. You need to honor her as such so that your prayers will not be hindered. There's been moments in my life and the course of our marriage where I I was trying to pray and it's just like the Holy Spirit's telling me, "Uh uh-uh, buddy. You don't go talk to me. You need to go talk to her. Like this came up this past week and I had to go to her and I said, look, babe, I'm sorry. I spoke to you out of my insecurities, not out of my love for you. Will you forgive me? And so we need to recognize, man, my wife is God's daughter. And because I have the sacrificial, serving, humble spirit of Jesus inside of me, I can sacrificially and humbly and serve my wife with joy and gladness. You see, really, marriage is supposed to be like this dance. Yes, we each have our steps to take. Yes, we have our roles to play. But when we take the steps that God has designed, marriage becomes this beautiful, amazing thing. And it becomes a tremendous gift of grace in our suffering. Now, I do want to say, I, I, I know there are a lot of people who you are struggling in your marriage right now. And I don't want to give the idea that if you go home and you perfectly do this this afternoon, all your marriage problems are going to go away. What Peter is giving us, these instructions, he's giving us building, blo- building blocks to build our, our marriage on. I mean, a construction worker doesn't go and hammer in one nail and say, okay, I'm done, it's good. This is an exercise that we work at throughout the course of your marriage and as you do this throughout the course of your marriage, you begin to create a marriage that becomes a tremendous gift of grace. And if you are struggling, starting to follow these instructions now, what that'll do is that'll give you the space that you need to work out those other issues and to work out those other difficulties. Um, After Sarah and I got married, we did marriage counseling for about two years after we got married. I mean, before we got married, I mean, everything was like rose-colored lenses, right? Like, oh, we're never going to fight. We're, we, we love each other. It's going to be great. And then after we got married, we we're like, buddy, let me tell you, we got some problems. One of the first things our marriage counselors did for us when we started our counseling was they made us take personality tests. And when they gave us the results of our tests, our counselors told us, you know, usually people with as opposite of personalities as you two shouldn't get married. And I'm like, dude, I just got married a month ago. That is so unhelpful for me. But here's what we've been learning. As we follow God's plan, and we often blow it. We we don't always follow this perfectly. This isn't, look at us, we've arrived. This is what we're learning. This is what we're growing towards. As we follow God's plan, marriage becomes this amazing gift of grace. And with everything that my wife and I have walked through over the last almost nine years. I mean, we've worked through the trauma and abuse from her past. There's been me working through all the hurt and insecurities that stem from my dad taking his life. With everything we've walked through this last four months since the miscarriage. It's often messy, it's often hard. Both of us bring a lot of baggage into our relationship. I was joking last night, if we ever write a marriage book, we should call it Baggage Included, because there's a lot. It's often messy, but here's what I want to say. I can't imagine walking through it with anyone other than her. It hasn't always been easy. When you have as much baggage as we do, there's a lot of fights. There's a lot of insecurity. There's a lot of things that we have to wrestle through. There's been a lot of counseling, but what we're learning is that as we follow God's plan, it's always worth it, and it becomes such a tremendous means of grace in our lives. You can thrive in your marriage even when you're walking through suffering. Now, in the final verses of our text this morning, Peter shows us God's design for one more relationship, and it's, how, it's our relationship with our church family. How do we grow in our relationships with our churches? I'm going to do this. I'm going to read verses 8 through 12. I've preached from this passage on relationships within the church before. If you're new around here, I'm the connections pastor here. I oversee our small group, so on a regular basis, I preach about What does relationships within the local church look like? So I am not going to preach this all to you. I'm going to read these passages. I'm going to hit a couple highlights. I'd encourage you, again, in that digital bulletin, there's a link that's got a full transcript to a lot of my thoughts and stuff that I've preached here before. So I'm not going to preach it all again. But let's read verses 8 through 12. The Bible says, finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another, and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult." But on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Hunter talked about that last week. And let him turn away from evil and do what is good. You see, why does Peter bring up holiness in our pursuit in in suffering? Well, why does he bring up holiness so much? He brings up holiness quite a bit because oftentimes in our suffering, we do what is evil instead of good. Because we're hurting, and so our guard is down. And so, what Peter is doing us is he constantly calls us to holiness in our suffering so we don't make our suffering worse, so that we can demonstrate following Jesus in our suffering is a better way to live. He says, Let him seek peace, or excuse me, verse 11, and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Verse 12, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. In this remaining five verses, Peter outlines for us how we're to live in relationship with each other as a church family. And really what he does is he gives us several goals to work for. The first goal is to be like-minded. We're to grow together in unity. We're to grow together in unity. And then in verse 11, he tells us to seek peace and pursue it. That's part of growing together in unity. The biggest common denominator among all Christians is Jesus. And so he says, live with that common denominator. He says be like-minded. He says be sympathetic. Our next goal is we grow together in sympathy. Sympathy just means suffering or feeling the like with one another. It means your pain is my pain. It means your hurt is my hurt. It means your joy is my joy. So Peter calls us to be like-minded. We grow together in unity. He calls us to be sympathetic. We grow together in sympathy. Next, he says love one another. This type of love in the original language is talking about brotherly love. It's phileo. It means We are family and so we grow together as family. Romans 12, 10 talks about loving one another as family. Next he tells us to be compassionate. We grow together in charity. We grow together in charity. Where sympathy is I feel what you feel, charity, compassion is actually doing something with that feeling. It means you're hurting, let me try to help you in a way that would be helpful towards you. Compassion seeks out the hurting and sacrifices to meet those needs. Next we grow together in humility be humble to be humble and lastly in verses 10 and 11 we see we grow together in upholding good as a church family we want to grow together and we want to help each other uphold what is good i don't know about you but he says whoever wants to love life and see good days of you want to love life and see good days i do he says when you respond to suffering in a way that reflects your new life in christ you will you'll turn away from evil and you'll do what is good. If you really want to love life and to see good days, Peter says, this is the behavior that will flow from that desire. This is the behavior that will flow from that belief. And as a church family, we want to encourage one another and lift each other up as we seek to do what is good. We'll seek peace and we'll pursue it because God's eyes are on us. I know oftentimes when we're suffering and we're trying to live a holy life, it's so lonely. It feels like nobody else sees, it feels like nobody else cares. And Peter gives us this amazing promise, and he says, no, God's eyes are on you as you live that way. And God's ears are open to you when you live that way. And every situation we face, whether it's our government, we saw last week, it's with a bad boss, in our marriage, and every situation we're to pursue peace with other people, this becomes an especially powerful testimony when we pursue peace and seek good to those who are hurting us, just like Jesus did. And Peter gives us this encouragement that God's eyes are on you. God sees that pursuit. God sees that pursuit of holiness in your life. And his ears are open to you. He hears you when you live this way. When we seek to be a blessing to others, verse 9, even in our suffering, God promises we will be blessed. Pastor Tony Evans said, as you become a blessing to others, you set yourself up to be blessed. Verse 9, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. When we're suffering, and yet we seek to live holy in the way Peter outlines for us, it becomes a means of God's grace in our life. So here's our takeaway. Honoring God in your relationships displays your relationship with God. Honoring God in our relationships displays our relationship with Jesus, especially to those who don't know Christ. Honor God in those relationships will display your relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the relationship that you have with us. And Lord, I know I was longer than normal this morning, and we worked through uh, maybe some more difficult or heavy passages for some people, but I pray that as we leave these walls this morning, that we would, like this passage said, seek peace and pursue it, that we would seek holiness and pursue it, and that we would seek to live our lives in a way that models your design, whether we're dealing with a difficult work situation or in our marriage or in our church family. Lord, I pray that we would model your design for these relationships. And Lord, as we do, I pray that people would see the worthiness of following you, Well, the world is clamoring for so many different things and so many different problems, and the Bible cuts through all the problems the world faces, and it says, this is the answer. The way of Jesus is the way of life. And so I pray that our church would be a visible representation of that here in the city of Fresno. We ask this in your name.